I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, we're joined by special guest, former U.S. Ambassador to South Korea, Mark Lippert, to discuss the current state of U.S.-Korea economic relations. We're back and better than ever because we have a very special guest. I would even say an honorary trade guy. We have former United States Ambassador Mark Lippert. Of course, he was ambassador to the Republic of Korea. Mark is a CSIS senior advisor. He is co-host of the amazing podcast video show, Capital Cable with Victor Cha. And Mark is Samsung Executive Vice President, Chief Risk Officer, of Samsung Electronics. Mark, welcome to the Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Long time listener, first time caller, as they say. So excellent, <laughs> excellent to be here. Well, I know Scott wants to jump in because he's got a few things. Well, we're sure glad to have you. And uh, if you can tell us a little bit about Samsung's business, most of us have Samsung devices in our home. We know it as a consumer electronics company. I'm looking at my TV for sports watching right over top of my laptop. Just tell us about what the scope of activities that you have on your plate. Well, absolutely, Scott. Thanks for the, again, the invitation to be here. And just to go into a little bit of Samsung's history, you know, the Samsung's very first product that sold way back when, decades ago in Daegu, Korea, was noodles, actually. Uh, and since then, it's been a meteoric rise to one of the world's great companies that covers a range of different products. So most Americans know us for our consumer electronics products. About 70% of American homes have a Samsung product in it. But we also do a number of other things that I think would surprise a lot of people. First, in critical technologies uh, that you guys talk a lot about, semiconductors, biologics, 5G networks, for example, we do all of that. We also have some, like, as I said, some surprises. Shipbuilding, people don't know us for that. We sell a lot of insurance in Korea. We also run a baseball team, the Samsung Lions. And I've been to their beautiful stadium in Daegu many, many times, including with my son. This year, not so great for the Lions. We're kind of ninth or 10th place uh, in the KBO, but uh, hope springs eternal, as they say. Well, look, you could always be part of the Detroit Lions, uh, which, uh, (laughs) as as they say, John F. Kennedy has only missed seeing one Lions playoff game. Well, I I will say, Scott, uh, you're onto a name thing. I I do like it. And you're onto a name thing because the first place team in Korea right now is a Samsung competitor, the LG Twins. Uh, So, you know, the the Twins, the Lions, we didn't go too far from MLB. So, Mark, you know, we're all thankful, especially my sons for the Samsung Lions. And I'll tell you why. During the pandemic, when we didn't have sports, my kids started watching Korean baseball and you know, Korean baseball, people don't realize it is awesome. Well, I say this as the honorary uh, goodwill ambassador of KBO, a title I still hold dearly because it means I get to go to a lot of baseball games and eat a lot of chimak, chicken and beer in Korea. <laughs> and I will just say this. The only time my parents ever took note of what I was doing is when I was on ESPN as a color analyst during the pandemic for KBO game. And even I got a note from former President Obama said, hey, I saw you on KBO. Uh, you know, so anyway, so uh, the ESPN, I saw you on ESPN doing KBO work. So anyway, full stop. You know, 
if you look at some of the players that are coming over from there to our leagues, it, it just shows how competitive it really is. Yeah, it's it's a great league. It's a fun league, as as you mentioned, Andrew. It's a, it's a, like going to a college football game. Koreans come to watch baseball games over here, and they always ask me, where's all the cheering? Yeah, and it's a much more technical sport. And I'll just say this. It was I've been to virtually every single stadium, and it is a treat. So if you get to Korea, make sure you hit a KBO game. Absolutely. Bill, do you want to jump in with some substance here? One more area where the U.S. global leadership is shrinking and other countries are becoming as talented as we are in sports. I think it's more, I think it's more, Jay Andrews' point about the player's supply chain assurance. It's friend shoring. Friend shoring. There you go. Well, Korea is, of course, a longtime friend of the United States and a treaty ally. Uh, and it's not always easy to be America's friend and operating in a very large, maybe the largest Korean company with a big U.S. footprint. I think we want to turn to what the, what that's like. And uh, Bill's got the, He'll start with the specific. Not always easy to be our enemy either, but there's been a lot of activity lately. I think we're going to end up, since we're trade people, talking about trade and economics, but let's maybe we can begin with a bigger picture. You know, there's, there is now a new trilateral agreement between U.S., Republic of Korea, and Japan. And to me, the noteworthy aspect of this was the fact that Korea and Japan both joined the same thing and are now apparently moving much closer together, certainly on security issues. But maybe you can say a few words about how the Korea-Japan relationship, which has had its ups and downs over the years, is coming along. Is this agreement a popular one in the two countries, or is there a lot of public resistance to it, or is it, does it suggest that you know the two countries have really turned a page in their relationship? Well, thanks, Bill. It's an excellent question. And you're right, there have been ups and downs. And really, this is due to the fact that history runs deep on this relationship between Seoul and Tokyo, it, largely because of the Japanese colonization of Korea from 1905 to 1945, end of World War II. This is a, a very difficult period in South Korean history. It's, it's, it's also relatively recent. And as a result, this is a very difficult, tough set of emotional, understandably so, issues in and around Korea. Uh, President Yoon has taken important steps towards Japan and the United States as well. But it's also important for context to note that this is really a, a continuation of a trend that has largely been effectuated by conservative governments. First, with Imong Bak, another conservative president, he tried to enter into a intelligence sharing agreement with Tokyo. That ultimately failed and became very controversial, but he tried. Pak Gane, after entreaties to China, inviting Xi Jinping to Seoul, reciprocating and going to a very controversial end of World War II celebration in Beijing, then did not get which she felt was sufficient Chinese attention or focus on the fifth nuclear test conducted by Pyongyang, North Korea. As a result, she pivoted hard into the Japan and U.S. relations, entered into successfully an intelligence sharing agreement with Japan, with Tokyo, and entered into a comfort women agreement with Tokyo. So a very difficult issue as well, historical implications there too. Both of those agreements actually were ultimately reaffirmed by the Moon government that succeeded her. But in that five years after Pak Gane was impeached and removed from office, this issue drifted. Uh, the Americans did not put the amount of emphasis on it. And as a result, there was some serious backsliding. Enter Yoon Suk Yul, conservative president, as I mentioned. He makes us a priority, number one. Number two, he hires advisors from previous conservative presidents who cared about this issue. Right, The 
the National Security Advisor Cho Tae Young was Deputy National Security Advisor under Pakane. Kim Ki Hyun, the Director of National Intelligence in South Korea, was National Security Advisor for Pakane. Kim Tae Ho, Deputy National Security Advisor, held the same role under Lee Moon Bak. So you have Yoon Suk Yeol's commitment, similar set of advisors, strong American commitment, which I I have been remiss in mentioning, but that's a very important factor. And finally, growing concerns with the complexity of the region on the security and economic fronts. And all that translates into warming relationships between Seoul and Tokyo and a stronger trilateral relationship. To answer your question directly on popular opinion, it has ticked up in South Korea. There was a very interesting survey in August that said 78% or so of young South Koreans are interested in a better relationship with Japan. You've seen some other data that shows modest increases. And the trilateral summit was about 45% support, 45% against, which for this issue is, is pretty good. So have we turned the page? No. This is and will remain a very difficult, complicated relationship driven largely by historical issues. But we have seen some very encouraging sign based on a strong foundation and leadership by Yoon suk Yul and, of course, counterparts in Washington and Tokyo. The last time I was there, my impression was that the Koreans were really trying to decide who they were more angry at, the Chinese or the Japanese. A long history in both cases. Where do you put that right now? Are they more worried about China? Well, what I would say is popular opinion in Korea about the Chinese has fallen off a cliff. And it bottomed out in 2022 when about 80% of Koreans disapproved of China, according to some polls. And what I would also add to that is that, generally speaking, over the sweep of the last two decades, the South Koreans have moved towards strong support for a rules-based international order, right? One, democracy has taken hold. Two, they become a very, very active trading nation. And three, they're increasingly extant on the global stage in a range of multilateral summits. So those two things, I think, in addition to what I mentioned about the Japan relationship on the first question, have really driven the South Koreans towards a rules-based set that includes Japan as a growing friend in the orbit. That's encouraging. I've, I thought it was a foresight and bold initiative by both countries' leaders, but I'm glad to see there's some signs that the public is following along. One of the, I think, best examples of Korea being much more active on the global stage economically relates particularly to your company, which is very involved in a number of high-tech areas, including semiconductor manufacturing and also batteries. And those are both topics that we've talked about on the trade guys frequently. And I I think we'll probably be talking about them again, over and over and over again. So let me spend a couple of minutes before I turn it back to Scott on, first on on, on chips and, and semiconductors. You guys are in the center of that particular storm because of the export control rules that were imposed last October, uh, which affected Korean companies with particularly those that have production facilities in China, as I think Samsung does. What's been the impact of those export controls on, on Korean companies and how is the Korean government responded to the controls? Yeah, it's a great question, Bill. I mean, for Samsung, we do a lower end memory work in China, which is a commodity. And I think as a result, we have a very 
different relationship with the United States government in terms of our export control rules and our policies. We work closely with them. We have found a road forward and not just related to our October 7 regulations, but also the guardrails and the general export control regime, right? There are really three layers that Samsung has to work through here in the United States. And by and large, we've had a very, very productive relationship. The Korean government, I think, is deeply engaged in this as well. There are other Korean companies involved in China. I think the situation is complicated, but I think generally speaking, it's been a very active part of the alliance. Let me just say, make two quick points. I think the Korean government gets very concerned about decoupling. I think where they they can live with is de-risking and a conversation with Washington about the contours of de-risking, right? How high is the fence? How big is the backyard, right? And I think that is a very healthy and productive place for the alliance. Let me get off the stage by saying what did catch, I think, everybody in, by surprise in Korea was less about export controls, interestingly enough. The Korean press really made a large story out of the notice of funding opportunity for the CHIPS application. In other words, they seized on to some of these things about profit sharing, right? If you get to a certain level, the US government can come in and take away some of your profits. The language there really, even though it's very soft language in the regulations, soft language in the funding opportunity, it became a story in Korea in the run-up to the state visit and it was something that the U.S. and the Korean government both had to work through in a very active and aggressive standpoint. Are Korean companies de-risking like American companies? Are they looking at their Chinese operations and thinking about how they want to plan them out in the future? Yeah, I, I think there is something to that. I mean, there's a Wall Street Journal article that uh, a few months ago that points to how Samsung's been doing this for uh, a decade plus. And I saw Korean companies starting to look around for other opportunities when I was there as ambassador. In part, it was rising labor costs and ease of doing business. And the South Koreans have always been, in recent memory, a trading nation, number one, and number two, looked in their own backyard, especially Southeast Asia, right? And you look at where some of these trends go, and Korean companies are very active now in Vietnam, for example, and really are ahead of the curve uh, in terms of recognizing that there are other nations in Southeast Asia that could be productive places in which to locate manufacturing and other facilities. Well, supply chain management is de-risking when you get down to it. Risk management is what you do in supply chains. You always are looking to qualify new suppliers, which takes a lot longer than many people imagine. You are looking for new sources, which often require investment. It's a very complicated puzzle, but it's daily work to keep your supply chain risk levels at a place where you can deliver products. So I'm sure Samsung operates that way and as do most global firms with these chains, but it makes de-risking a two-way street. I asked the question because this comes up a lot when I have meetings with people and there's, I think there's assumption here on the part of a lot of people, uh, particularly uh, journalists, that this is being driven by government. And I am inclined to think that's really wrong. I mean, there are places where the government puts its thumb on the scale, export controls being an example, but it seems to me it's really driven by companies who are trying to figure out what the smartest move for them is economically. And if the risk of doing business in China or anywhere for that matter, goes up markedly, then they're going to, it's natural for them to try to find workarounds so they don't get stuck. And, and Bill, to your, your and Scott's point, embedded in there is cost, right, as well. I mean, the Koreans over the last 30 to 50 years have dealt with a landscape in Asia where countries are on meteoric rises in terms of basically their cost of doing business, 
standard of living. And so I think there's an inherent flexibility built into a lot of Korean companies in terms of moving around Asia based on price sensitivity that has risen rapidly in some areas of Asia. Who do you think the big winners will be if that continues? The big winners. Well, I mean, it's um, I'm going to say Samsung's always going to be a big winner, right? <laughs> you guys coming off on a sort of a joking attitude. So I just, you know, I, we I listened to you up too much, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I mean, there's no question Vietnam has been a big winner so far, right? There's no doubt about it. And I think the actions of the two leaders, both the prime minister of Vietnam and the president of the United States, I think really underscores that. But I think it's already been a big winner. I think another country that's interesting and has shown pretty strong growth has been the Philippines. It's an interesting country. The other one pre-pandemic that obviously had one of the highest, if not the highest rate of growth around the world was Bangladesh, right? And so you look at those spots and those are areas that are attracting a lot of attention in and around Asia. And it's not just East Asia anymore. It's Southeast Asia and it's South Asia that are important for everyone to look at. So, Mark, what the question I have is, how long does it take for a country like Korea to start shifting to places like Vietnam or the Philippines? It's a really good question. It's something that I tried to get a handle on when I was there as ambassador, right? And a lot of it depends on the sector and the industry. But I, what I would say is, I do think it's faster than most because of a couple of things. One, I think the Koreans are constantly looking in and around the neighborhood. Number two, a lot of these big table companies in Korea have their own engineering and construction firms and can then move their facilities in a way that's more flexible and agile, right? And I think number three, I think in accelerating all of this has been something that I think the U.S. has caught up to more lately is the incentive structure, right? The subsidies that other countries are offering or the incentive packages. So all three of those things are in flux. And generally speaking, I think it accelerates the ability to move in and around Asia. Bill, over to you. One more and then over to Scott. Have you noticed the Chinese taking any retaliatory actions against Korea or Korean companies? They have in the past and other situations. I'm wondering if there, if you've seen anything like that now. Well, I, I think to your point, you know, the Korean companies are always concerned about global implications of Chinese actions, right? You've seen the critical minerals decisions by the Chinese galleon. You guys have talked about this at length, the Micron decision. But on the other side of the ledger, you've also seen the Chinese reach out to Korean companies. Xi Jinping, for example, in April visited an LG display company in, in China. Right. So one and two, the another interesting piece of work by CSIS that Victor Chaw and his team did is that it's not a completely one way street with the Chinese. One, we've talked already about some of the diversification of Korean companies away from China, but also Victor identified a list of 28, I guess, components, materials, things that originate from South Korea that the Chinese are over 70% or higher dependent on for their global supply. And that's an interesting fact that I think the Chinese are aware of, the Koreans are aware of, but is not talked about a whole lot. That is interesting. And it wasn't widely reported here. 
didn't know about Let, it. Let's talk about uh, sort of the core issues of trade between Korea and the United States. First, wanted to point out that there's a big investment relationship as well. And Korean companies have invested in the United States and been tremendously successful, whether in autos or uh, what we used to call white goods, so things like uh, consumer appliances, electronics, a whole range of activities. So that looks like it's going well on the surface. Likewise, the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement has been in existence now for a, over a decade. But, but if you could talk about how's life for Korean companies in the U.S. and for the U.S. economic presence in Korea and Asia beyond, because in that part of the world, as, as you well know, foreign policy is economic policy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, Scott. Let me just maybe take two different swings at this in different directions. First, what I would say, you alluded to it in the run-up in the lead-in in your question. The Korea-US Free Trade Agreement. It is vital. It is important. It is when it came out and still to this day is viewed was called the gold standard. I think it still remains a very high standard trading relationship or FTA, Free Trade Agreement, that drives a lot of this productive trans-Pacific trade between the two nations. The thing that I think needs to get worked out and has always been a work in progress is the issues that exist just outside of the FTA that are maybe you could call the spirit of the FTA or a loose reading of the FTA would encompass it. I, I talk a lot about in terms of regulatory reform in and around Korea, right? Standardizing and making coherent our two systems in a little more effective way. I think that's the next step. I think that's a work in progress. I think it's key to unlocking even more trade investment especially U.S. companies doing business in Korea. On the other part, what's life like for a Korean company in the United States? Samsung's been here for, for decades, right? And what people don't realize is that, you know, in all of this latest, I guess I would say, machinations around semiconductor work, Samsung's had a, a fabrication facility here in Texas since 1996. So we have, I think, taken a long view of the United States and the Korean trading relationship that has paid off, right? With the FTA, with the accelerated piece. Final point, let me get off the stage here. The incentive packages now that I alluded to earlier that are now catching up, right? To some of the other Asian countries, the CHIPS Act, the IRA, right? Those things have really, I think, accelerated a broader trend, not just from Samsung, but from other Korean companies that have started to do business more and more here. I think that has really accelerated because it changed cost structures. It changed business models in a good way and incentivized deeply uh, Korean companies to do business here in the United States. Very helpful. Is there anything we should be, we, the United States, should be doing in the region where we're kind of falling short now? We could, we could pick up our game a little bit and benefit both the region and the United States. I mean, I think we all know, and you guys have talked about this at length, it's it's uh, market access, right? I mean, it's just, it is a critical piece. Short of that, I think you look at digital services, right? Those types of agreements are really critical. And I do think if you're going to accept the IPEF construct, to me, I think the focus on supply chain is fine, but you also read those documents, the 25-page document on supply chain, and it says intend to over and over again versus commit to. I think to me, it's it's about getting into the, the nitty-gritty of regulatory reform, right? Okay, if you're going to have a forum, right, and it's not going to be about market access, and I think there's some value there. To me, it's about more and more regulatory coherence, right? The non-tariff barriers, all those things that just facilitate 
ease of doing business. I, I found that as ambassador in the Korean context. I found that in other contexts that these very, very seemingly pedestrian issues can lead to all sorts of commercial disputes and friction that are frankly unnecessary, pass on cost to consumers. To me, there's a lot of work that can be done on the regulatory side. Now, those were always some of the challenges before the, the free trade agreement. I remember being in the cosmetics business and everybody dreaming about the Korean market. It's the third largest market in the world for color cosmetics, US, France, Korea. Okay. And the foreign market share in Korea was like dust. <laughs> so it was all regulation. Yeah. No, 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 no tariff is, errors, really. And it speaks to, I think, my um, ineffective uh, nature as ambassador. But I, I gave a speech when I was there and uh, it was covered by the uh, the Korean press. And it said, Lippert calls for cutting the red tape. Uh, it's all about <laughs> regulatory reform and all of that. And, uh, you know, here we are almost a decade later still talking about it. But I, I do think it's an issue that's not just unique to Korea, but I think Asia writ large. And I think there's real work and some real arbitrage to be unlocked there if the market access piece is not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. Do you guys have any idea how happy it makes me that Scott was in the cosmetics business? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's some things that I learned when I was with Procter & Gamble that would downright well, scare yeah. you, Andrew. <laughs> I bet. Well, as long as you're not wearing their products, I think we're okay. Um, let me follow up on that, Mark. Do you see any signs that IPEF is going to tackle regulatory issues significantly, or is it too soon to say? It's just, you know, IPEF has been a bit of a mystery to me. I think there's been some strong work there. I don't want to discount it. But I, I think that where it goes has always been, to me, not clear, right? And what they choose to focus on and what has always been a little bit of a murky thing. I think, I guess I would say if I was counseling folks and people called me for my recommendation, I said, you know, tackling that and getting harmonization on two or three things would be really important. I guess if you're in the supply chain business, Right. And you're trying to both not just be about early warning, but also facilitate ease of cross border flow of certain items, getting the regulatory harmonization. And you guys have talked about this on your previous shows about some health products, right? Pharmaceuticals, things like that, but broadening that out to a, a few other baskets of products, I think would be and products and services, mind you, I, I think would be important. Yeah, but you know, you've touched on a nuance that I think hadn't occurred to me. And it's a really important one. And Scott, we probably should look into this before. It's fine to talk about nearshoring, friendshoring, uh, de-risking, uh, you know, adjusting your supply chains to deal with a set of problems that you face. It kind of ignores the issue that even if you find a friend, if you will, to to reshore, you may not be able to get in there because of their, because of regulatory incompatibilities. I mean, they may want you and you may want to go there, but they may not have a regulatory structure that makes it easy for you to do that. We're not spending much time on that. They may want something in return. And if you're not in the market access business, you don't have anything to offer. So it's a uh, it's complicated issue. And, and that's, Scott, to your point, just to take it a little further, I, I do think that if we do have some regulatory burdens on our side, right, that that play into there could be swaps and trades. And in that red tape speech I gave, I 
you know, it was uh, not a, a prominent line, but I mentioned that there was actually a seat width requirement in Korea that existed nowhere else in the world. And, and I think GM was actually making little foam seat width things to, to put into their seats that was just slowing down the process, right? And it's those little things. By the way, my, my going away for the American Chamber of Commerce, they gave me a whole box of the seat width uh, plastic things. So, you know, it was a big deal. It, it became this issue. They went down to the Ministry of Transportation. The transportation said, we, we don't have a requirement, but we, and, and basically it became pick a standard and let's harmonize standards around that. It worked and it, it saved money and effectuated better, better commercial relationship. You know, I have to say your comment about speeches brings back an old memory, which I will bore you with for one minute. When I was in college, which was at Johns Hopkins, Dean Rusk, who was the Secretary of State at the time, came to give us major speech, which he hoped would be carried on media. And the speech was about all the little things that America does to promote peace and economic development that you don't know about. You know, the things that don't get publicity, the little details. And I happened to, I was an usher actually for the event. So I had a I had the text of his speech and I was kind of following along uh, and he just had a list. You know, we did this, we did this, we did this. And he got, and I remember it distinctly, he got to the eradication of the Ethiopian screw war and people in the audience started to laugh. And then I noticed he skipped every other paragraph for the rest of the speech. <laughs> Can you imagine the guy that put in the Ethiopian screw worm into his speech? What happened after that? <laughs> What Apparently, it was like. a serious health issue, but <laughs> it's not exactly front page news. Um, <laughs> and uh, you give these speeches at, with some, at some risk, Mark, but I admire you for doing that. <laughs> it's very true. No, it's it also underscores, I would say, the work that embassies do every day. It's not fun all the time, right? It's not diplomatic cocktail parties in striped suits. It's in the weeds, really granular stuff that is really important, but never ever makes headlines, especially after failed ambassador speeches on uh, red tape, uh, full stop there. <laughs> Mark, I want to ask, how closely aligned or misaligned are the United States and South Korea on tech competition with China right now? Where do you think that is? Yeah, I, I think there is, generally speaking, strong alignment. In Washington, folks run around and sort of talk about the Koreans not necessarily being aligned, all that. I just don't find that to be true. I think it is a it is a work in progress about where the contours are, and rightly so. And frankly, that defines the security relationship in the alliance. That, that defines whole other host, the trading relationship part of the alliance, right? When the alliance is healthy, there is likely alignment, but some friction on the contours, right? And it would be weird if we agreed on every last thing. We're two different countries. I think part of it is that the Koreans have been doing business in and around China for a long time. They're in the neighborhood. They're not going anywhere. They're their number one trading partner. They are very important. And so the Koreans have a different view of how to do business effectively, safely with China. I'd also say this. The Chinese have increasingly, starting with steel, then moving to shipbuilding, now moving to semiconductors, have moved into spaces where the Koreans are. So the Koreans are very incentivized to make sure there isn't IP uh, transfer. There isn't the, the turning over of information or things that would otherwise advantage Chinese competitors on the economic 
space. Putting aside the very important conversation about Korea, U.S., the military alliance part of that, I'm just talking about purely in the economic scope. We can have a whole nother conversation on the importance of it on that side. This is a trade show. But I think for those reasons, it's very there is general alignment on the economic trade technology side with the U.S. and the Republic of Korea. You know, increasingly, I wonder, is it harder to keep national security and economics separate when it comes to this equation? Well, look at the Korean language. They've invented a term for it that melds them. It's Kyungje Anbo, economic security. And it's all over the Korean newspapers. So the Koreans have made a direct correlation to this in the public sphere, talk about it all the time in policy circles, right? And frankly, you could argue, I think, going back 50, 60 years in Korea, I think the Koreans recognized that to be a secure country over time, they were going to have to compete. They were going to have to be a technological leader. And they needed a strong friend in the United States with a military alliance. And all three of those things, I think, have always been proximate, but they're even closer today. Mark, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like the uh, Farsight cartoon with a kid in the classroom raises his hand and says, uh, my brain is full. Can I leave? <laughs> <laughs> no, th- thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. As a huge fan of the, the podcast, listen every every single week, religiously wait for it to drop. And uh, moreover, um, happy that there have been Bengals references, happy we're getting to Korea, happy we're getting to KBO. So it's really hit the Mark Lippert bingo uh, score sheet on everything. I am very worried about your Bengals. My Ravens face you guys at your place this weekend. And uh, I can just tell you, you the Ravens are, are you know still kind of in preseason the way I saw it last week. Well, being a Cincinnati Bengals fan, it's a it's basically a perennial um, recriminations uh, kind of uh, existence. And so, you know, I think we're just getting warmed up now that the season starts. Of course, Scott's a Browns fan. So, well, but uh, I'm also a Joe Burrow fan. I'm glad there's somebody blocking for him because uh, that kid's got talent. I just worry about him breaking. So. I, I'm a big that, that's the thing about me with the Bengals is uh, I used to really not like the Bengals very much at all. But since they got Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. Great, great players, uh, great team, really, really interesting. Yeah. All I'd say is they got cool helmets. The Louisiana ties run deep with the Andrew. They do. They do. You know, it's like Tulane guys like me will never really admit that we kind of like LSU. But (laughs) we haven't had great football until pretty recently. So, you know, watching guys like Burrow and Chase and Justin Jefferson and Patrick Queen when they were there, man. What a team that was. Well, for my part, thank you. This has been really good. (laughs) Bill, I thought you were going to jump in on a a football reference there. No, our our listeners, I think our listeners learned some things important. They also learned some things about the Bengals that probably aren't important, but that's all right. (laughs) To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.